Welcome to Tomorrow's World. Every year, professing Christians celebrate the holiday known as Easter, but few have any understanding of its true origins. They have no idea as to how a day supposedly picturing the resurrection of Jesus Christ came to be known by the name of the pagan goddess Ishtar. Neither can they explain the origin of celebrating the day with rabbits and colored eggs. What do these have to do with the resurrection of Christ? But this is only the beginning of mysteries that few can explain. Do you realize that the Good Friday, Easter Sunday morning resurrection tradition contradicts the one sign that Jesus said he would give? That's right. Literally hundreds of millions profess that Jesus Christ is their Savior. But their very traditions deny the one and only sign that Jesus said he would give that he was who he claimed to be, the Messiah. Consider what this means. Either Jesus is not the Messiah he claimed to be, or professing Christian tradition is wrong. It can't be any other way. On today's program, we're going to look into the Bible, the only true source that reveals what really happened at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, and it is not what most people think. If you're willing to look into the biblical record and the facts recorded by well-respected historians, you can know the truth about Easter and its pagan past, and you can know the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll be right back, so stay tuned. A warm welcome again from tomorrow's world to all our friends around the world. For many professing Christians, Easter is the most sacred holiday of the year. For others, it's a time to show off a new set of clothes and perhaps a hat or bonnet. For children, it's an exciting time to search for brightly colored eggs that were hidden in the garden. Often children are given live chickens or rabbits by well-meaning parents. But consider, what does all this have to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The simple answer is absolutely nothing. Nevertheless, some look at such customs as harmless fun for the children. But are these customs truly harmless? Do they obscure the truth about Christ's crucifixion and resurrection? I often tell people the story of my Uncle George and how he started down the road to become a staunch atheist. When he was five years old, his mother, my grandmother, told him one day to go out and look for the eggs the rabbits had laid. Even at this early age, he knew that rabbits didn't lay eggs 
because my grandmother raised rabbits for sale. He immediately protested, rabbits don't lay eggs. And she replied, Georgie, if you look real hard, you'll find them. As he explained to me a couple of years before his death, he really did look, but didn't find any. And he went back into the house and with disgust told her, Mother, you lied to me. Rabbits don't lay eggs. And that's when he began to question the Christian religion. Why is it that Christians lie to their children about such things when the ninth commandment tells us, you shall not bear false witness? And where do such unusual customs come from? Let's notice what historians reveal to us about the origin of some of these Easter traditions, starting with the very name itself. Easter is nothing more than another spelling for the Anglo-Saxon goddess, Yostre. But where did this goddess originate? The New World Encyclopedia suggests a connection between Yostre and Easter with the very popular and ancient goddess Ishtar. Scholars likewise speculate that Yostre, the Anglo-Saxon goddess of spring, whose name later gave rise to the English Easter, may be etymologically connected to Ishtar. Historians confirm that Ishtar was known as the goddess of fertility, and Easter comes from the North goddess of fertility and was symbolized by a rabbit. Both rabbits and eggs are fertility symbols. People often use the expression, breeding like rabbits. An example of this is seen in the title of a November 2011 Scientific American article, Why Pioneers Breed Like Rabbits. That the ancient fertility symbols of rabbits and eggs were introduced into the Easter tradition is well known among any who study the subject. The Oxford Companion to World Mythology tells us this about the origins of Easter. The holiday comes in the early spring and is clearly related to ancient fertility myths of reborn heroes. For many, Easter is synonymous with fertility symbols such as the Easter rabbit, Easter egg, and the Easter lily. The egg is clearly a fertility symbol, but many historians take the origin of the Easter egg all the way back to the Babylonian myth of a large egg falling from the sky into the Euphrates River, from which the goddess Astarte was hatched, thus the connection between Astarte and the egg. Historians tell us that Astarte is merely another name for Ishtar. Astarte was worshipped in Egypt and Ugarit and among the Hittites, as well as in Canaan. Her Akkadian counterpart was Ishtar. These were all the same goddess, but spelled differently in different languages. There were also some differences in the way she was worshipped from one culture to another. Just as we see variations in spelling and in customs in our modern world and the worship of gods that transcend national and cultural boundaries. So as we have seen, Ishtar was the ancient goddess of fertility and love, and was also known by the names Istra, Iostra, Easter, and Astarte. In the Hebrew language, the plural form of Astarte was Ashtoreth, and we find many references to the worship of Ashtoreth in the Old Testament. Astarte, 
Ashereth is the queen of heaven to whom the Canaanites burned offerings and poured libations, Jeremiah 44. Jeremiah refers to this queen of heaven in chapter 7 and verse 18, where he describes a family preparing for a celebration in her honor. The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. One Easter custom that is popular in some countries around the world is the baking of small cakes or buns with a cross cut into them before baking or a sweet glazed cross placed on the top after baking. These are especially popular on what is called Good Friday, the supposed day of Jesus' crucifixion. Now notice this statement about these buns in light of Jeremiah's denunciation of the family tradition of baking cakes to the Queen of Heaven. The cross, people assume, is to denote the cross upon which Jesus was crucified. This is, in fact, nonsense. Spiced buns with crosses were being produced throughout much of pagan Europe. Spiced buns have always been symbolic in worship, and ones adorned with crosses were made for the goddess Iostre, where Easter gets its name. One of the things for which Jesus condemned the religious leaders of his day was that they rejected God's commandments and substituted their own traditions. One of God's commandments was that his people are not to borrow pagan ideas and blend them with his observances. Deuteronomy 12 verse 30 warns us not to ask, How did these nations serve their gods? And say, I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www. LCGCanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. Easter is nowhere to be found in the Bible with one exception. The old King James Version inserted the word Easter in Acts 12 verse 4, but virtually all authorities agree that the original word for which it was translated should read Passover. In addition to blending pagan customs and traditions into the worship of the true God, contrary to his command, we find that even the part of Easter that supposedly comes from the Bible is terribly flawed. Most people believe Jesus was crucified on a Friday, put in the tomb in the late afternoon of that day, and then he rose early Sunday morning. But is this what the Bible actually tells us? After all, the Bible is the only source that can properly answer this question. So what does it actually say? Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Consider, 
Jesus said that no sign will be given to that generation except for the sign of Jonah. Jesus would be in the grave the exact same length of time as Jonah was in the belly of a great fish. And what was that time? Three days and three nights. Now try as you might, you cannot come up with three days and three nights between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning. Even if you count parts of days, you still come up short. But let's try. Scripture tells us Jesus was put in the tomb right at sunset. But some count those few minutes before sunset as day one. Friday night would be one night. The daylight portion of Saturday would be the second day. And Saturday night would make the second night. Now, if Jesus rose Sunday morning after sunrise, we might count that as day three. But where's the third night? It just isn't there. So if the Good Friday Easter Sunday tradition is correct, we are left with three possibilities. One, we have not properly understood the sign Jesus gave. Two, the Good Friday Easter Sunday tradition is wrong. Or three, Jesus was wrong and he is not our savior. Have we properly understood the sign? Did Jesus literally mean three days and three nights? The Abington Bible Commentary bluntly tells us Jesus was mistaken. The statement made is inaccurate, for Jesus was in the grave only from Friday evening to Sunday dawn. Most commentators do not accept the statement to be literal, primarily because they do not want to give up tradition and they need to find a way to make it fit the scriptures. Instead, they allege that a day and a night combined simply means a single 24-hour day. Further, the first and third days only need to be a portion of a day. However, Matthew 12, verse 40 is not dependent on one language alone. Jesus' words were recorded in the Greek language, and it is true that the Greek expression used in this verse may mean parts of three days. Although, as I've just read, the Abingdon Bible Commentary rejects that idea. More importantly, we must remember what Jesus actually said. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So how long was Jonah in the belly of the fish? We learn from Jonah, the first chapter, verse 17, the following. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The book of Jonah was written in the Hebrew language, and we must look to that language and its common usage to understand this expression. Appendix 144 in the Companion Bible explores the meaning of three days and three nights in Hebrew usage. After giving a technical explanation, it sums it up this way. Hence, when it says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, it means exactly what it says, and that this can be the only meaning of the expression in Matthew 12, verse 40. This is the first reason we know that Jesus' claim means a full three days and three nights. The meaning of Matthew 12, 40 is not dependent on one language alone. 
The second reason is found in the statements Jesus made in other passages about how long he would be in the grave. Jesus spoke of his body figuratively on a number of occasions as this temple. And in John 2.19, he declared, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. In three days means that it has to be within three days. But on other occasions, it is recorded that he would be resurrected to life after three days. Mark 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Following his resurrection, he explained to his disciples what had happened and why. Luke, the 24th chapter, and verse 46. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So here we have three different expressions that help us understand how long he was in the tomb. In three days. After three days. The third day. When we put these expressions together with the Companion Bible's explanation about the meaning of three days and three nights, there can be only one time that fits all four expressions, exactly 72 hours, not a minute before or a minute after. The time is precise. But there's a third proof that he would be in the tomb exactly 72 hours, and that is the biblical chronology of events. And this is something that very few people understand. One reason is because most professing Christians have rejected the festivals and the holy days found in the Bible and have substituted pagan traditions. Let me explain. Why is it that most people assume that Jesus was crucified on a Friday? The truth is that many have no idea other than that is what they've been taught. But for those who know a little more about the Bible, they are familiar with the fact that he was crucified on the day leading up to a Sabbath. For example, we have Luke's statement in chapter 23, beginning in verse 52, where it describes how Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. As all students of the Bible know, the biblical Sabbath begins at sunset on Friday and ends at sunset on Saturday. It would therefore appear that Jesus was crucified Friday morning and put in the grave very late Friday afternoon. But this is not the case as we shall see. Many errors that we make are the result of a carelessly assumed false assumption, and this is the case on this subject. There is no doubt that Jesus was crucified on the preparation day for a Sabbath, but which Sabbath was this? Was it the weekly Sabbath, or was it an annual high day Sabbath? 
What many call the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper was, in fact, the Passover. There can be no doubt about this, although some scholars try to say otherwise. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all call Jesus' final supper with his disciples the Passover. Let's look at Luke's account beginning in chapter 22 and in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So they went and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Can there be any doubt that the Last Supper was indeed the Passover? The Passover was a very special day, but it was not a Sabbath day. However, the day that follows the Passover is a Sabbath day. Notice this from Leviticus 23. On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. We know from this that the day following the Passover was a high day, an annual Sabbath day where work was not to be done. Remember that God counts time from sunset to sunset. Jesus kept the Passover with his disciples at the beginning of the day shortly after sunset and was put in the grave late on the afternoon of the Passover day. When the sun set that evening, it was the first day of unleavened bread, a Sabbath day. And this is exactly what the Apostle John reveals in John 19 and verse 31. Therefore, because it was a preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, and note this, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Why is this not generally known? Further, we find that the Bible records two Sabbaths involved in the time that Jesus was in the tomb. Mark 16, verse 1 tells us the women rested on the Sabbath and then bought spices. Now when the Sabbath was passed, notice that it was after the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. But Luke, the 23rd chapter, tells us they prepared the spices and then rested on the Sabbath day. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. 
Now you cannot prepare the spices before you buy them. Mark tells us that they didn't buy the spices until after the Sabbath. Then Luke tells us they prepared them and rested on the Sabbath. These two passages give infallible proof that the women rested on the high day, the annual Sabbath. Then they bought and prepared the spices before resting on the weekly Sabbath. This is the only way to understand these verses. Either there were two Sabbaths with an ordinary day in between, or the Bible contradicts itself. Now let me diagram this for you. Jesus kept the Passover with his disciples after sunset on Tuesday evening. He was taken into custody later that night and crucified on Wednesday. He was put in the tomb right before sunset, late Wednesday afternoon. Now let's count three days and three nights. Wednesday at sunset began the annual high day Sabbath, and Wednesday night was the first night. Daylight Thursday was still the Sabbath and was the first day. The Sabbath ended at sunset. This began the preparation day on which the women bought and prepared the spices. Thursday night is our second night, and the daylight portion of Friday is our second day. When the sun set Friday afternoon, the weekly Sabbath began. Friday night is our third night, and Saturday is our third day. Jesus was raised from the grave late Saturday afternoon, right before sunset. But the women did not come until very early the next morning, what is commonly called Sunday. And when they arrived, he was already gone. To understand more on this subject, please go to our website that will be shown momentarily, where you can read or download our booklet, The Holy Days, God's Master Plan. This booklet shows in easy to understand language how the holy days of the Bible lay out God's master plan to save mankind. It's a marvelous plan and one that you need to understand. So go to our website right away and be sure to come back next week at this same time and same station to learn more about God's great plan for you. Until then, goodbye, friends. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. The preceding program has been produced by the Living Church of God.